2 Samuel chapter 11, we continue making our way uh, through this. I mean, it's a great chapter in, in that it's in God's Word, but, but it's not a great chapter, <laughs> right? I mean, this is a chapter of chapters, but uh, many of you are familiar with the name Hippocrates. He was an ancient Greek physician who lived during the classical period. He is considered to be the father of medicine. And one of the expressions that he coined goes like this. You've probably heard it. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We've heard that phrase, right? This phrase justifies why extreme diseases demand drastic treatments. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, David could identify with this phrase, that desperate times call for desperate measures. What started as a lustful look has now escalated into a desperate attempt or desperate attempts to cover the tracks of what's been done. The situation has turned very, very desperate. And as we continue looking at what men are capable of today, we see, we're going to see very clearly what men are capable of when their choices place them in desperate situations. Their actions are drastic. Now, to be clear, desperate situations should reveal what the Lord is capable of, not what we're capable of. That's what they should reveal. The problem in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is that at this point, David's not walking with the Lord. He's actually running from the Lord. So now this is all about what he can do. This is all about how he needs to fix this. And when a man is running from the Lord, we see what he's capable of beginning in verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. Retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David, and Uriah the Hittite died also. This was cold-blooded evil, orchestrated by King David himself. He penned Uriah's death warrant and put it in his own hand to deliver to Joab. Uriah was carrying the details of how his life was about to end. A man who'd only been faithful, loyal, dedicated to his king. A man who had put his life on the line for his king was carrying the details orchestrated by the king to end his life. And listen, he was such a man of character. Think about this that David knew he wouldn't open the letter. I mean, David put this letter in his hand for him to carry to Joab, knowing 
that Uriah was a man of character and high integrity. I mean, just think about it. If Uriah opens this letter, the cat is really out of the bag. This thing is known. Had he opened it, he could have avoided what was about to happen to him. And I am convinced that at this point in his walk, in David's carnal mind, he justified this. Listen, I gave this guy every opportunity to avoid this, and he just wouldn't comply. I told him to go home. He wouldn't do that. I mean, I brought him into my palace, and I mean, doesn't he understand how much of a privilege it is for him to just be in the presence of the king? And it was a privilege. Like, if you were a king at this time, people didn't have unfettered access to you. No one could just stroll into your presence at a whim. That that wasn't, no. To be in the presence of a king was a very big deal. So here's Uriah, not just in his presence, but but David's given him food and gifts, and he's he's given him the best wine that he could offer him. I mean, and who's this guy think he is? He's ungrateful. He just should have obeyed my orders. To the king, he had done everything he could to avoid this, but in desperate times, listen, this is what men are capable of. They are capable of maliciously abusing others. They are. They are. The British historian Lord Octon coined a phrase that you've heard, It goes like this, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power what? Corrupts absolutely. The point is, is the more power that a person has, the more tempted, if not likely, they're going to be to do what? Abuse it. To abuse it. And history is filled with dictators who have proven this, and what we just read in verses 14 through 17 is another example in history of someone who abused their power. Someone who misused it. Because he was the king, listen, he answered to no one. He answered to no one. He abused Uriah, and he abused the commander of his military, Joab, listen, by ordering him to facilitate murder. And you're going to do this because I'm the king. And you do what I say. This is the absolute abuse of power. This is one of the reasons, listen, brothers, I I mean, I'm talking to everybody, but but brothers, I'm, I'm really, please hear me. This is one of the reasons that an account and an unaccountable life is so dangerous. This is why you ought to be uncomfortable if you've arranged, if you've stacked your life where no one is close enough to you where you have to answer for you. You ought to be uncomfortable if you can hide comfortably. If you can stay off of the radar, if you can go about your life, if you can do your thing and there's no one close enough to say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what's that? What, what's this? You ought to be very uncomfortable with that. Because listen, 
A man is guaranteed to fall when he is unaccountable in his walk. It's guaranteed. It's not, it's likely that you will or that you could. No, it's that you are going to. It's guaranteed. If you are unaccountable in your walk as a man, you are going to fall greatly. Familiar verse, Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpeneth iron, so a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. So here's the thing. Again, I know we know this. Oh yeah, I know that verse and I've I've taught it. I'm an advocate for it. But here's what you got to understand. In order for iron to be sharpened, it must come in direct contact with another piece of iron. This is a very up-close and personal, deliberate experience. This doesn't just happen because it's just going to happen. No, it's a very intentional and even, at times, uncomfortable experience, if you know anything about this. I would like to think that if I was the king in this situation, I'd like to think that if a man like like Dave and if a man like Kyle, if they were part of the messengers that I was sending to, to do this, this grievous heinous thing that those men would have had enough metal to say, hey, respectfully, sir. No, I am not going to retrieve that woman. And we're not going to stand by and let this happen. I'd like to think that the guy Bailey and John and Paul and we can go around the room that if those men were we're in that circle where I'm giving that command, hey, go bring Uriah's wife to me. Go bring Ahithophel's granddaughter to me. Go bring Eliam's daughter to me. That those men would say, hey, 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 no disrespect, but no, we will not do that. As a matter of fact, we're going to do everything in our power to stop this from happening. Right? Amen, brothers. Like, no, you're not doing this. That didn't happen here. In this same chapter, Proverbs 27, we encounter another critical verse about accountability. Look at verse 6 of Proverbs 27. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Someone in that group of messengers that David sent to get Bathsheba, listen, someone in that group needed to wound him. You follow me? Someone needed to wound him. Someone needed to challenge him. But here's my question to you brothers and sisters. This is a very pointed question. What is the name of the friend who has permission to wound you if necessary? What is that name? Hey, listen, if all of your relationships are nothing more than fan clubs, right, so these are people who are in your circle who walk with you and all they do is... 
oh, that's so great. You're so wonderful. That's so incredible. You're just so good all the time. You're so sweet. You're so lovely. You're so kind. You're so good. If those are your relationships, I'm afraid for you. I really am afraid for you. If you don't have someone in your circle willing to wound you if necessary, I'm afraid for you. That means that this person has permission to tell you what you need to hear without you becoming argumentative, without you becoming defensive, without you taking it personal, without you now defriending them. No, the relationship says, man, we've just taken a step in our relationship. I remember a wise man said this to me once, and it stayed with me. He said, whenever someone says a hard thing to me, I always ask myself, how many other people were aware of the same thing and didn't say anything? I always wonder that. Have you guys heard, <laughs> I'm going to put myself out here, and that's okay. It's not, not one of my finer moments, but here we go. Have I told you guys the breath mint story? Kyle's heard the breath mint story. He's laughing already. One of my dearest brothers back on Long Island, his name's Pete, sweet brother. We were out one day, and uh, we were running an errand for the church, and we were standing pretty close to each other, and he reaches in his pocket, and he hands me a breath mint, and he goes, trust me. And I'm like, what? He goes, trust me. I said, are you telling me my breath stinks? He goes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. I said, bro, I brush my teeth and I use mouthwash. He goes, I don't care. You need this. That's Pete. If you know Pete, uh, this guy was a captain with FDNY for years. Uh, this guy saw a lot of stuff. So he was a straight New Yorker, straight shooter. I love Pete. You know what I learned in that moment? That Pete loves me enough. That Pete is a loyal, faithful brother and friend that to help me, he was willing to hurt me. I didn't get to play the card. Hey, I'm a pastor. You don't get to talk to me that way. You don't. It wasn't disrespectful. He was being honest. Who's that person in your life? But King David was far from alone in Scripture regarding leaders who maliciously abuse others. Look at Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. The temple had been desecrated by religious leaders who looked and saw an opportunity to make a profit, extorting and robbing and cheating and abusing the people. 
Luke eleven forty six, and he said, Woe unto you also, ye lawyers, for ye laid men with burdens grievous to be borne, and ye yourselves touch not the burdens with one of your fingers. Some of the burdens that these lawyers, or also known as scribes, placed on people, some of these burdens were outrageous. Outrageous. I mean, things like you, you, you couldn't tie a knot unless you were a woman uh, tying a knot on her girdle on the Sabbath. Like you, you couldn't carry something in your left hand or you couldn't carry something in your right hand. I mean, this was just the absolute abuse of people. Listen, and legalism then uh, was as ridiculous as it is now. You understand something about legalism. One of the great dangers of it is it promotes the abuse of people. It does. Listen, every man must recognize and respect the line of authority. You got to recognize that line and you have to respect it. We've said it before. No one has unlimited authority. No pastor, no husband, no father, no mother, no director. (laughs) Nobody does except God. Only the Lord knows how many women in his church over the centuries have been bullied and manipulated into adultery. Only the Lord knows. You know, sweetheart, uh, concubines are a thing in the Word of God. And God has put it on my heart to enlighten you that you are that for me. That one of the ways that you can help me in my ministry is to perform that function. This is from God. How I wish I was exaggerating. It's so great that the Lord has moved you to give this $100,000 that you've inherited. It's it's so great that that your heart is soft to the Lord to, to give that to the church. But when we're talking about this amount of money, just to make sure things don't kind of get messed up here, just write that check out to me directly so that I can ensure that it gets handled properly. I, I'm not exaggerating. I wish I was. David crossed the line of his authority and he abused a number of people. He abused Bathsheba. He abused Uriah. He abused Joab. But look at this again in verse 17. And the men of the city went out and fought with Joab, and there fell some of the people of the servants of David. Bathsheba was not the only widow that was made that day, was she? She wasn't. Other soldiers and their families were abused as well. That was truly the malicious abuse of others. Now, in this final observation of what men are capable of. It's so important to recognize that, listen, Joab actually changed the plan. 
Did you catch that? Look at verse 15. And he wrote in the letter of David, saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. And it came to pass, when Joab observed the city, that he assigned Uriah unto a place where he knew that valiant men were. Now, Joab was carnal. He was arrogant. He was self-willed. He was a very prideful man, very stubborn man, but he was also very intelligent. As a military general, in particular, the guy was really, really sharp. So much so that he knew that David's plan, as is, would be too obvious. If we do what you've ordered me to do, now I don't know the extent of what he knew or didn't know, but he knew enough to know that you want him dead. And if I follow your plan the way that you've presented it to me, it's going to be obvious that this is what was determined or decided. So we're not going to do that. We're actually going to change the plan where um, we're actually going to do something that from a military perspective, doesn't make sense. We're actually going to take the soldiers and we're going to push them to within direct range of the archers on the wall. So we're actually going to give up our advantage and move these guys. And so, so when David says, what were you thinking? You can just say, make sure you tell him Uriah died. And that will be enough. But the plan was spelled out. Look at verse 20. You see it. And if so be that the king's wrath arise, and he say unto thee, wherefore approach ye so nigh unto the city when you did fight, knew ye not that they would shoot from the wall? Like, what were you thinking, Joab? You're a better man than this. Here's what Joab knew. He knew that not only would Uriah likely die, but to ensure that David's plan worked, other men had to die too. This is dark, guys. This is dark. Which would make Uriah's death appear to be just a casualty of war. Uriah died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Uriah just happened to be one of them. Hey, mark it down. As you keep turning the pages of 2 Samuel, you think Joab forgot this? Joab was very intelligent. And he was also an opportunist. So now I know how you roll, king. You've given me the green light to roll the same way. David, you, you have forfeited the right to ever hold me accountable. You have forfeited the right to ever reprove me or rebuke me or correct me. You, you've lost that. I know who you are. Wow. Here's the other observation. Men are capable of selfishly using others. Men are capable of this. Not only did David maliciously abuse people, but he selfishly used people. It's almost like when you look at this, 
if you ever played chess, but it's almost like David is, is playing chess and he's just moving the pieces where he wants them. And these are lives. But he's the king, so he can do that. I want you here. I want you there. And yeah, your life is, you're done. And you're done. And you get to live. <laughs> Looking out for his sole interest, he abused his power and used Joab to carry out this diabolical plan. Let me just tell you, what's happened to David at this point is something that happens and something that I've seen happen in ministry leadership too many times, and it's very dangerous. And listen, we're all vulnerable to it. The higher you go in ministry, this is something you have to mark down or be aware of. Listen, leaders will abuse and use people in ministry when they believe they are sovereign and indispensable. Sovereign and indispensable. When you get there, what is coming? When anybody gets there, what's coming will be the abuse and use of people. It's coming. And proof that David had arrived here is found in his words to the messenger sent by Joab to deliver the news about Uriah's death. Look at verse 25. David is here. Then David said unto the messenger, Thus shalt thou say unto Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Make thy battle more strong against the city, and overthrow it, and encourage thou him. Are you catching this tone? Are you catching this tone? This ought to put chills down your spine. This is one of the most disturbing things you will ever read in the Word of God. This ought to terrify you to get within a hundred miles of this attitude. Listen again, look at it. Let not this thing displease thee. Uh, uh, Joab, I'm telling you, this is okay. Here's the problem. Look at verse 27. And when the morning was passed, David sent and fetched her, that's Bathsheba, to his house, and she became his wife. And bear him a son, but here we go, watch it. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Uh, Joab, don't let this displease you. Uh, the Lord said, I'm displeased. <laughs> Anybody interested in that? <laughs> In his mind, David had become so sovereign that, listen, it was he who determined what was pleasing and displeasing. Not the Lord. I will tell you, Joab, what is pleasing and what's not. I'm sovereign. 
So coveting another man's wife and adultery and murder and taking another man's wife to make her my own, that's not displeasing, brother. You, you just make sure you go ahead and finish this battle and get it done. And according to verse 26, it seems that God wasn't the only person who had a problem with this. Look at verse 26. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. Now, God did not have to include that detail, did he? But he did. If Bathsheba was in on this all along, why would she mourn? This would have been welcome news. He's out of the way. I mean, this is what I've been hoping for the whole time. And notice, after learning that her husband died, she does not send for David. Uh, she, she's not uh, trying to get into the palace. Okay, my husband's out of the way, so coast is clear. I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, she's already sent once, right? To let him know that I'm with child. She could have easily sent again, hey, I'm without a husband. <laughs> no, it was actually David who what? Sent for her again. Interesting. Let me give you the telltale sign that a leader has become sovereign and indispensable in their mind. The value of others is solely determined by what they can do for the leader. That's when you know you've crossed the line. The only value that people hold is what they can do for you how they can serve you, how they can make your life better. Any and everyone around this kind of leader, <laughs> their focus is to ensure that this leader is served and pleased at all times. Everybody knows that they're always on trial. You're always on trial. You absolutely cannot and you will not disappoint me, will you? You will not disagree with me, will you? You will not challenge me, will you? You will not put your kids in public school when I homeschool my kids, will you? You will absolutely not wear pants to church because I wear skirts. You will not listen to secular music because I don't, right? See, I'm not pleased with that decision in your life. You're on trial. And you better make some adjustments real quick to make sure that your life aligns with mine. Oh, man, guys. Mark said something to me a few weeks ago. It terrified me. He didn't know it but it shook me. 
it shook me. Mark and Carla have been in the process of um, considering buying a home, which I think is great. But selfishly, I've made a few statements to Mark that go something like this. You know, the Kansas side is just, it's where's that, man? Like, that's, that's what you ought to be looking, bro. And, I, and I've, I've talked about how great it would be. Like, man, if you guys were on the Kansas side, just think about how close we would be, all the things we could do, how many lunches we could have on a whim and dinners and things like that. And those kind of comments. Uh, inadvertently, I might have been too strong with some of that and made Mark feel like they got to buy a house on the Kansas side. But here's what he said that shook me, and he was serious. He says, bro, I just want you to know, we're probably going to buy on the Missouri side. I'm thinking, yeah, all good, man. But you know what? It's like, Lord, what have I done? Have I, have I crossed the line? where Mark feels like he owes me an explanation about where he buys his home? Or that he feels like somehow he's going to disappoint me or let me down because he bought a home on the lesser, on the lesser side of the state line? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Boy, let me tell you, you talk about body language. Arms folded, head shaking. <laughs> That's great. I love you, sis. <laughs> she was not feeling that, man. <laughs> are, you, are you following me? And I'm thinking to myself, bro, yeah, no problem, man. Like, you don't owe me an explanation. Mm. From a leadership perspective, we must always acknowledge and respect lines. We do. And what leads to abusing and using people is, listen, when we try to function as the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to other people. So we're going to make the Bible say what we want it to say, and we're going to tell someone what God is leading them to do, like, what side of the state line they should buy a house. Be careful. And listen, the sign that we're flirting with this, if not doing it, is when we're very strong in our approach regarding matters that are not sin. We're not talking about sin. We're talking about decisions that you get to make, that I get to make, In Christ. And now we're going to come on really strong about what that ought to look like. Listen, if people believe that to please the Lord, they must please us. Man, we have erred greatly. We have erred greatly. Man, I I don't want people around me to feel like they're always on trial. 
Like they got to run every decision by me. They got to make sure that I'm okay with whether they do this or they do that. Or, hey, listen, man, let's, when it comes to sin, the word of God is very clear, is it not? It's not vague. Well, that could be sin. It could be. The Bible even has a word for that. You're in a spot where you're not sure, man, maybe I shouldn't, or maybe I should. You shouldn't. Romans 14. You shouldn't. Now, here we go. It doesn't mean that everybody else shouldn't. There are things that I'll be talking to some of you, and you'll say something that you do or something that you did that, to me, is off limits. Guess what I say? Nothing. <laughs> Unless you're looking to buy a house on the Missouri side. <laughs> so, hey, we're going to have a conversation. You've not heard from the Lord. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. The reality is, we're flirting with it. You can get a lot more house for your money on the Missouri side. The taxes are lower. Just saying. Yes. Let me give you, just let me close with a very critical verse for every leader, every man. Okay? 2 Corinthians 13, 10. Paul said, Therefore I write these things, being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the power which the Lord hath given me to edification and not to destruction. At this point in David's reign, what did he do? He used the power that God gave him to destroy lives. Positions of leadership, we should be used, or we should use those positions to edify others, not destroy them. Husbands, you know what your goal ought to be? You know what the goal of every husband, every father ought to be in your home? is to see your wife, to see your children thriving, to see them edified, to see them built up, right? That, that should be your goal. It's to see your wife just, to see her countenance just radiate, to see her just be alive, to see her have joy and contentment and peace. And you know what? Your wife... I get it. We're all, as men, we're all in a mess. We're all ugly and all that. But, but you know what? Your wife ought to say, Lord, thank you that I, I get to be his wife. Thank you that I get to be in his home. It is, it is just so good to be around him. He's wonderful. Man, he's so kind with his words. He's so gentle in his actions. He's so considerate. He's so selfless. Like he's always looking out for me. Like he always goes the extra mile. Your kids, as far as they are concerned, you know what you ought to be? You ought to be the biggest cheerleader in their life. Where you're just always encouraging them. Hey, son. I'm so proud of you. Hey, you are really good at this. You know, I, I, I told Bree this morning, she, let me tell you, this girl, you talk about a helper. So the battery on my laptop died, and I was trying to, I ordered a new one, it came, and forget it. Like, you're trying to get these little screws out. 
I mean, come on. You, you need like a microscope. I mean, within two minutes, I was so frustrated, I was about to throw it out the window. This girl jumps in. Man, she, I mean, she just, she's patient. So let me try this screwdriver. Well, let me try that one. Well, let me, let me try that one. I'm like, I'll just buy a new laptop at this point. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Right? And man, she just stayed on it, stayed on it. And then we finally got in it. And I mean, unless you got the hands of, a, of an infant, I can't. Man, man, she got this thing done. She got it done. Got it all hooked. I told her this morning, I said, Bree, you are going to be a terrific helper someday to your husband. You are just wired to help. I see your heart. Like, you just, she's just like her mother. Man, I could just see her face just light up. And listen, I'm not, I'm not bragging about, I'm just saying, fathers, like, this is you be an encourager. Are there constructive moments? Of course. But there's a way to have those. Right? You can even, did you know that you can edify someone even in a constructive moment? You know, one of the things that I try to do as well as I can, I'm not saying I always get it right, but I do try. I try to have constructive moments with people without them realizing we're having one. Right? I don't believe you have to hurt people to help them. I don't, right? I, I, don't, I don't think that you have to, right? And, and what I mean by that, you don't have to eviscerate them. You don't have to be nasty and cutting, right? There are times where I have to talk to Lori about something that I'm struggling with or something I don't understand or we're having a disagreement and, okay, there's a way to have that discussion. We talk about it all the time. We talk about positioning, right? There's, what we want to do is we want to position the person to win in the discussion. Well, how do we do that? We do that by positioning our words carefully. So there are words and there are phrases that we can use that help us get where we need to be without you feeling like you just got ran over. Husbands, fathers, we we have to excel here. If people are going to enjoy being with us, being around us, and being under us, we got to win there, amen? We don't want to abuse. We don't want to use. We want to take the power that God's given us to edify, to build up, amen? Lord, thank you for the time that you've given us in 2 Samuel. And Lord, we still have a ways to go, but um, you've spoken to us. You sure have, and God, I pray for my brothers, pray for my sisters. I know that you're dealing with all of us, and so, God, thank you for what we've seen this morning, and I do pray that it won't return void for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.